From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. This week, we speak with Jody Sakalauer about her new book, Determined to Stay, Palestinian Youth Fight for Their Village. Later in the program, Mahdis Keshavars of the Arab and Middle Eastern Journalist Association joins us to talk about the organization's recent statement in response to the biased coverage of the war in Ukraine. Stay with us. At a time when one country's invasion in Europe has virtually monopolized our news media, another brutal and worsening occupation continues unabated. In almost complete radio silence, that of Palestine, where scores of innocent people are being routinely jailed, tortured, and displaced. But this complicit silence is regularly interrupted by courageous voices of dissent, such as Jody Sakalauer's right here in our midst, author of the recently published Determined to Stay, which gives voice to Palestinian residents of Silwan in East Jerusalem in their peaceful and heroic struggles to remain in their native land despite a relentless campaign by Israel to evict them in favor of yet more Jewish settlers hailing from the rest of the world, including, as we speak, tens of thousands of war refugees from the Ukraine. She spoke with Khalil Bendib about her book and her work on Palestine. Jody Sakalauer, welcome to Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. It's great to have you with us today. Jody, first of all, congratulations on your new book, Determined to Stay. Tell us a little bit how this came about and why the interest in Palestinian rights. Probably for the last 10 years, I've been working with Yada Basham Rush from the Middle East Children's Alliance, supporting teachers who want to bring Palestine into their classrooms. And we go and do presentations, we do workshops, and the way it has been set up from the beginning is Ziad would use his family's history as a way to kind of talk about the recent history of Palestine since the Nakba. And I would, as a social studies teacher, I would talk about how you could turn that into a curriculum, how you could integrate it with what you were teaching in your class. And two things happened. One was I was always peppering Ziad with questions. And at some point he said, you really need to go to Palestine to see for yourself if you're going to do this work. And the other thing that happened was we realized that there really aren't that many great resources for teaching Palestine at a middle school and high school level, books that are from Palestinian perspective that have good politics and yet are accessible and interesting to kids. So I went to a lot of places on that first trip to Palestine. You know, we went to Ramallah and Jerusalem and Bethlehem and Beit Zahor and um, Hebron. And the last place I went was Silwan, which is this little village that's just south of the old city in Jerusalem. And there was just something about Silwan. It's one of the places that the Israelis are really pushing to ethnically cleanse, to push all the Palestinians out of Silwan and the whole area around the old city in Jerusalem. And the resistance is just so beautiful, and it's so based on uplifting the children and youth. 
And so I started thinking, and I realized that, you know, a lot of times teachers say, oh, I can't really teach about Palestine. It's so complicated. And really, it's not that complicated. So I thought, what if I go back to Silwan, interview lots of youth and their families, and use the history and the current reality of Silwan as a way to illuminate, to create a door for youth and anybody to understand what's going on in Palestine. So that's what I did. I went back four times while I was working on the book and determined to stay. Palestinian youth fight for their village is the story of Silwan. And why was it you had this focus on the youth? That's a different kind of book. And when you read it, it's not just for young people. Anybody in <laughs> age can read it. But you have this interesting, maybe because you're a teacher, you have this interesting perspective and you're interested in what the young people have to say. Yeah, and I thought that young people here would be particularly interested in what Palestinian youth have to say. You know, there are so many parallels in terms of criminalization of youth, in terms of forced displacement, you know, that in the United States often takes the form of gentrification. In Palestine, it takes the form of stealing homes and demolishing houses. I just thought that there was really a lot that youth in the United States would recognize in what's happening in Palestine and it would illuminate what's going on in Palestine and also make them think more deeply about what's happening in, in the United States. So realizing that you're not the only person something's happening to, that there's a pattern, it's empowering. It makes you feel stronger and like you have allies in the struggle. To quote your book, at one point you say, I quote, I couldn't pretend this had nothing to do with me. The United States gives $3.8 billion a year to Israel. When we were walking around Silwen, I noticed that many of the Israeli settlers were speaking English with New York accents like mine, end quote. Given that so many of Israel's most ardent and influential supporters in this country are among your fellow Jews, do you as well feel a special burden as a Jewish American? It's certainly not unfair to ask it. You know, I come from a family that when I was growing up, my parents never talked about Israel. But my father especially did express a lot of these really racist ideas that are kind of the ideological underpinning for Zionism. Jews have suffered more than anyone else in the history of the world. We're smarter than everyone else. That's why they hate us. You know, these things that even when I was a young child, I was like, oh my God, this is so wrong. I can't stand to even listen to it. So I'm sure that was some of the initial impetus. But, you know, these days in the United States, the right-wing Christian support for Israel is enormous. It's really about which side of history are you going to stand on. So tell us a little bit about this Teach Palestine project in light of Governor Newsom's veto of a bill to mandate a course in ethnic studies that would have mentioned Palestine, that would have done a little bit of justice to Palestine. Tell us a little bit about this effort that you're part of to teach about Palestine. The Teach Palestine project, our goal, and we're a very small project out of the Middle East Children's Alliance. And as you know, the bulk of the work that Mecca does is supporting work on the ground in Palestine. And 
providing material support for grassroots campaigns in Palestine led by Palestinians. But we also felt like it's really important to raise up a new generation that understands the connections between the struggle in Palestine and the struggle in here and why it's so important to support Palestine and to stop the U.S. from playing this totally reactionary role in, in supporting this violent colonial regime. So we do workshops. There, We have a website, teachpalestine.org, that has resources and curriculum and we're happy to work with teachers to help them develop curriculum, either using the book or not using the book. We have podcasts, background information for teachers. We've been working with groups of teachers who are trying to figure out how to deal with either bringing Palestine into their classrooms and into their district or dealing with the backlash, you know, from Zionists and other parts of the right wing when they try to do that. So that's the Teach Palestine project. And then in the past few years, the co-coordinator of the project at this point, Samia Shoman, who's an amazing Palestinian educator from down on the peninsula, she and I have been working very closely with what's happening in terms of making sure that Palestine is part of ethnic studies. And in California, the original ethnic studies model curriculum did include great curriculum overall and some really strong curriculum on Palestine. And there was just an enormous right-wing backlash against it. And the final curriculum is pretty Zionist. Contradictory thing happened that like on the one hand, in terms of the statewide struggle to ensure that the State Board of Education's model curriculum around ethnic studies includes Palestine, we kind of lost that struggle. But in the course of that, we've built so much unity, so much solidarity with ethnic studies teachers and social studies teachers and grassroots organizers all over the state. And everybody started talking about why Palestine needed to be included. And now there's a Liberated Ethnic Studies Institute that does teach about Palestine, it's on everybody's minds talking about why it should happen. And the thing about genuine ethnic studies really starts with the U.S. as a white settler state. How settler colonialism developed in this country, both in terms of the genocide of Native American people and also the role of slavery and, and the slave economy in building the U.S. And then, of course, ethnic studies is always from the perspective of resistance, of fighting back, fighting for liberation, fighting for freedom. And when you start looking at the U.S. as a white settler state, it just makes sense. Okay, the U.S. is a settler colony. Israel is a settler colony. When you have that framework, comparing like what's the difference of different kinds of colonialism? What, what are the specifics around how settler colonialism operates and how it continues to operate until you stop, take responsibility for what you've done, and figure out how to create justice, how to make reparations? 
if you're really teaching ethnic studies, your mind is going to go automatically to Palestine, and teaching about Palestine is just going to enrich the curriculum. So that's what we were trying to do on a statewide level, and now we have a national organization that's actually fighting to protect ethnic studies, protect Black Lives Matter, protect critical race theory, and make sure that teaching about Palestine is part of all of those. You draw these parallels very well in your book. You give examples of how even here in the United States is still going on. There's still many blatant examples of that going on as we speak. Even here in Berkeley, in some ways, with the, the Shell Mound and all that, we're still pushing, 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 pushing. Even the, the little remains of what's still here. Right, just a few blocks from my house and also a few blocks from KPFA headquarters, right? So it's... Right here, but you know, wherever you are in the United States, you're on stolen land. That you know, if you look for the history, it's right there. All the more striking and the most left-wing uh, little bastion of the in the entire United States of America, which is Berkeley. Even here, my niece went through K through 12 here in Berkeley, and as you uh, mentioned previously, there's hardly any notice, any mention. Of the genocide here, this is mentioned genocide in Europe. Yes, we're very focused on that, and God knows it was horrible. But <laughs> if we're really interested in history of genocide, hey, this is ground zero. I mean, this is where it happened first. And there's hardly any mention of that, very little about slavery, and zilch about Palestine, of course, which is going on as we speak every day. I sometimes teach a, as adjunct faculty at people who are becoming teachers at, in the College of Education at San Jose State. And if we do a unit on Palestine or even on Arab American history, even anything about Islamophobia, people will tell me this is the first time anybody's ever raised this in a classroom I've been in. The idea that if you're going to teach in the United States, you need to be teaching Arab-American history and culture, and you need to be including Palestine. It's just shocking. One time I had a, in that teacher education class, one of the students was Palestinian, and I had the students answering a survey, and one of the questions was, when is the first time in your schooling that you had a teacher from your home country or a teacher who spoke your home language. And she just burst into tears because the idea that she had a right to a Palestinian teacher or a teacher who spoke Arabic, who spoke her home language, was so far from what she had gotten from the public schools here that she couldn't even imagine it. Jody, to come back to your book, a wonderful book uh, titled Determined to Stay, tell us a little bit how you went and you went back and you discovered Silwen and you connected with the people there and the kids and you started telling their stories. Tell us about your journey, how you came to want to write this book and give a voice to the people there. As I was telling you, Silwan just seemed like such a special place. I really wanted to write about it. And the first time I went back, I talked to some of the folks at the Wadi Hilla Information Center, which is one of the centers of organizing in Silwan. Jawad, who founded the center there, he told me that there were three things he thought I should focus on. 
One was criminalization of youth. The second was how the Israelis are using house demolitions and house theft in order to displace and push people out of Silwan. And the third is there's this unbelievable thing in Silwan. It's called the King David National Park. You know, somewhere in, in the Bible, it says that King David's castle was on a hill. Silwan is on the hill. So with really no evidence, the Israelis decided that this was where they were going to build this huge national park, supposedly at the site of King David's castle. And calling it archaeology, they've tunneled through the whole Wadi Hilwa neighborhood of Silwan. A mosque fell in, they destroyed a school, a bunch of houses have been ruined. Now like half a million people are coming a year, tromping through Silwan. It's like an archaeological Disneyland, but it's another form of colonial conquest. And then there's just this beautiful resistance in Silwan in terms of all these programs for youth and, and women, and people are just determined to stay. That's why I named the book that. Their resistance is like, we are not leaving. And, you know, in the past year, you can see from the attacks on Sheikh Jarrah, the escalating attacks on Sheikh Jarrah, and on the Al-Bustan neighborhood in, in Silwan, that the Israelis have really escalated their efforts to just push all the Palestinians out of East Jerusalem. And so it's a great time to understand what's happening in Silwan and what's as a way of understanding what's happening in East Jerusalem and actually throughout the West Bank in general. And if folks have like read about Sheikh Jarrah in the newspaper and they're like, well, what's happening there? Reading Determined to Stay, the situation is so similar. It really is very eye-opening about how the Israelis are moving in that part of East Jerusalem to try to ethnically cleanse it. And on the other hand, the determination of the Palestinians to stay. So one of your chapters, you titled Archaeology as a Weapon. What are you talking about? One more motive for just displacing the Palestinians who've been there for time memorial. You make also the claim that Israelis arrest children to make their parents move. What do you mean by that? And can you give us some examples? Well, you know, the way that things are set up in East Jerusalem ever since 1967 is that the Palestinians who were there got a residence card. But if you leave for any reason, you can't return. And so there are all these ways to try to push the Palestinians out and create a situation where they can't come back. And one of them is by arresting children. As I was saying before, I've been to Silwan four times now. And, you know, I spent all my time interviewing children and their families. And in all that time, I didn't meet a boy in Silwan over the age of five who hadn't been arrested at least once. One of the stories in the book is about a five-year-old boy who was arrested because his mom was being attacked in the house and she was by the Israeli army who had come in the window while she was bathing her child in the bathtub. And all of a sudden, the Israeli military forces their way in through the bathroom window. And so, of course, she yelled and her five-year-old child was out on the street and he 
picked up a rock and he came running up the stairs to try to protect his mother. He didn't throw the rock. He didn't do anything. And he was arrested and held by the Israelis for, I can't remember now, 12 or 14 hours. There's a precedent for throwing a rock at somebody bigger than you, isn't there? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, especially a whole group of soldiers, right? When you're five. There's a, another story in the book about a boy who got arrested because he had a broken ruler in his backpack. And the Israelis who were going through the kids' backpacks in front of the school decided it was a weapon, and they put him on house arrest for months. And once you've been arrested then you've got what we would call in the U.S. a jacket. Whenever there's a problem, you get arrested again. There are so many Israeli teenagers who've been arrested over and over and over again. The parents and community leaders and so on are very clear that this is an effort to make us feel like we can't protect our children and we'll go. But despite this level of terror, people are really trying to stay. You know, the Jawad Siam also co-founded this, it's called uh, MADA, it's a creative center there, and it's a center for children, and it's a place for them to go to not be on the street, where they can play on the computer, have classes, do hip-hop, learn debka, and have some of their childhood, but also to protect them from what happens if they're on the street, where the chances are they're going to be arrested, or worse. You, uh, Jody, uh, at some point in your book, you express the fear that you've had of getting fired for teaching about Palestine. Why would you have that fear? Tell us more. Well, lots of teachers get fired for teaching about Palestine. There was actually a teacher, and she's not in New York anymore, but she was teaching in a school she thought was progressive in New York, and she invited Ziad to come and visit her class. And... The next week, she didn't have a job. People do get either fired for teaching about Palestine, pressured not to teach about Palestine, told that they have to teach about Palestine as if it's, they'll say, it has to be even. You have to show both sides of the story, as if you would come in and present Columbus's side, you know, or you talk about, oh, let's understand the situation in terms of Cortez. What was his point of view? When there's colonial conquest, there's the perpetrator and there are the people who are fighting for their rights. It's not even. And it's not that you don't want to understand what people's motives are, where they're coming from, or understand the difference between leaders and people on the grassroots. But, you know, our goal is critical thinking. We really want students to be thinking critically about the history of this country, what's going on in the world, and to realize that every day you wake up and decide, who are you going to be? Are you going to be somebody who's in solidarity with people who are fighting for liberation, for freedom, for justice for everybody? Or are you going to be on the other side? My hope is that kids who read this book, anybody who reads this book, will be, wow, what can I do to support Palestine? Your book, Determined to Stay, was published by what I believe is the only Palestinian-American publisher. 
that's Interlink, which was a natural home for the book, and a vast sea of publishers rather hostile to telling the Palestinian story. Did you happen to approach any other publishers, or would that have been an uphill battle, in your opinion? <laughs> we approached a couple of other publishers, progressive publishers. We didn't waste too much time on the mainstream publishers, but we talked to Interlink fairly early on, and they were so supportive that it just made sense. You know, it was a natural home, and we loved their other books, and we're in the right family. Your book begins with this uh, wonderful foreword by a Native American, very touching and moving. Nick Estes, who wrote the introduction. And throughout the book, you make the parallel between very similar kinds of uh, settler colonialism happening now still there and happened here and in some ways still happening here as well. When you went to Jerusalem the first time, so one thing that shocked me was the intensity, the speed and aggression of how Israeli settlers are taking over Palestinian land and how similar to U.S. history, so much of that theft is quote-unquote legal, mandated by Israeli laws and approved by Israeli courts. For example, he says Indians weren't U.S. citizens until 1924. I didn't know that. We couldn't own property. I didn't know that. I thought that was further back in the past. And that sounds very much like what's going on in Palestine. We needed a pass, to quote him again, we needed a pass to leave the reservation. We needed a permit to improve our land or to run cattle, end quote. And determined to stay, you keep bringing this parallel, which I think is very illuminating, and it makes it a really important book, not only letting people tell their own stories, which is unique and original, but also putting it into context, into an American context. So for that, I want to congratulate you. It's an important book. I hope it gets taught someday, and the sooner the better, just the same way that Elie Wiesel's night in, in, is, is taught in English classes. And God knows that rankles because Elie Wiesel was, was such a racist and a Zionist. I know. It's really upsetting. That is really our goal is to get teachers to teach Determined to Stay, Palestinian Youth Fight for Their Village. And actually, we just had a, both a fundraising campaign among Mecca supporters, and we also got a grant that means that we can subsidize class sets of the book. So if there are teachers who are interested in bringing Determined to Stay into their classroom, we can help them do that, both with curriculum, but also by giving them a class set or two of the books. So if folks are interested, well, they should probably just contact me. It's a uh, Jody at MeccaForPeace.org. So it's J-O-D-Y at M-E-C-A for Peace.org. Or if you go on the Teach Palestine website, which is TeachPalestine.org, you can connect with us that way too. We've got about five teachers who are piloting the book this spring. And we'd love to have it in lots more classrooms. That's why I wrote it. Like, I want everybody to read it, but I especially want people in classes to read it. You said you received a grant for this work. Where did the funding come from? Interlink printed the book. But we got a grant that means that we can subsidize teachers who want to teach the book but don't have the money in their budget. You know, school budgets are so pared back these days 
that um, if teachers want to bring this, the book into their classroom, but they don't have the budget to buy a class set, we can help with that. Jody Sekalauer is the author of Determined to Stay, Palestinian Youth Fight for Their Village. She spoke with Khalil Bendit. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. The Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine has been getting wall-to-wall coverage across the world. But in spite of heroic reporting by Ukrainian and foreign reporters, in early days of the war, a troubling pattern emerged again in comments made by a few journalists working for major news organizations. This is how Al Jazeera English presenter Peter Doby compared Ukrainian refugees to those fleeing wars from the Middle East and North Africa. And what's compelling is just looking at them, the way they're dressed. These are prosperous, I'm looking to use the expression, these are prosperous middle-class people. These are not obviously refugees trying to get away from areas in the Middle East that are still in a big state of war. These are not people trying to get away from areas in North Africa. They look like any European family that you would live next door to. In a statement, the Arab and Middle Eastern Journalist Association, a U.S. nonprofit group, condemned what it's described as the, quote, orientalist and racist news coverage, in particular regarding how journalists have compared the conflict in Ukraine to those in Middle East, which it says ascribes more importance to some victims of war over others. I spoke with Mahdis Keshavars, who is a board member of the Arab and Middle Eastern Journalist Association, about the racist undertones in some of the reportings and how they shape our understanding of war and its victims. But first I asked her about the Arab and Middle Eastern Journalist Association and the group's mission. So the Arab and Middle East Journalists Association is effectively a home for Arab and Middle Eastern journalists and people who are covering the region. And our goal is to provide uh, members with a platform and a professional network for for those of us who are working both on and around the Middle East and, uh, and are around the world. Can you talk about some of your recent activities? In relation to what we've done, you know, in the past year or so, um, we have issued repeated guidelines around coverage and what we see as bias in coverage um, when it pertains to areas like Palestine and the war and attacks on Gaza, guidelines around the Middle East and coverage around post 9-11 um, and the 9-11 anniversary. And most recently, we've issued a statement in response to the coverage around the Ukraine crisis. And for each one of these statements, it's always been a direct response to requests from our members who are working in newsrooms around the world and who are seeing these kind of dualities um, in the types of coverage that we're seeing and are calling them out as they can. But, it, you know, at some point you need the weight of, um, of an association, a journalist association to kind of call out what we see as a major flaw in the kind of reporting. 
Really, we're, we focus on being a professional network and being able to do what other journalist associations do, and that is provide um, support, job announcements, events, uh, professional development, those kinds of things for our members. Unfortunately, as it seems that Islamophobia and anti-Middle Eastern sentiment remains one of the last bastions of accepted um, bias, we find ourselves increasingly in a position where we have to call out these kinds of biases and try to change So let's talk about the recent statement you put out a few days after the invasion of Ukraine. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has displaced more than 3 million people and has caused immense human suffering. Russia's deliberate siege and destruction of cities like Mariupol has painful similarities to what Russia did in Aleppo in 2015. And Professor Mohammad Bazi wrote a piece in the Business Insider in which he says, Putin perfected his Ukraine playbook during his years-long bombardment of Syrian civilians. It includes bombing hospitals and disinformation campaign and exploiting fear of a deadlier outcome. He says, unlike Syria, Russia's military onslaught in Ukraine has outraged much of the world and led the European Union and the United States to impose severe sanctions on Russia within days of invasion. And again, just a few days after the invasion, in late February, the Arab and Middle Eastern Journalists Association issued a statement calling on news organizations to be mindful of implicit and explicit bias in their coverage of war in Ukraine. And in your statement, You tracked examples of racist news coverage that ascribes more importance to some victims of war over others. You know, I think all of us who are working or adjacent to newsrooms and news coverage are aware and have been long aware of a kind of bias when it comes to covering or making comparisons to the Middle East. That's not something that is new for us. But what we do see and what we're increasingly appalled by is the ongoing references and the sheer amount of this kind of coverage that we were seeing with um, not just CBS, not just the Telegraph or Al Jazeera, but we saw this, you know, I think widely for those who are in France across French television, they're still seeing it. I don't know that there's been enough pushback to change that kind of behavior and France has its own issues, but it was just the sheer magnitude of coverage that was openly dehumanizing Middle Eastern people and the Middle East experience in favor of what is happening in the Ukraine, which is absolutely egregious and absolutely worth the coverage and time that it has been dedicated. And it's obviously one of the largest humanitarian crises we've seen in some time, but it is not so widely different than other humanitarian crises we've seen. And as Mohammed uh, Bazi rightfully pointed out, as what we've seen in Syria. And so it's that kind of duality that I think as journalists and as newsmakers, it is important for us to acknowledge and to point out and to change fundamentally. We've seen some examples around CBS, which we pointed out in the statement around Charlie Degada saying that this isn't a place with all due respect, like Iraq or Afghanistan that's seen conflict raging for decades. And then going on to say that the Ukraine is a relatively civilized and relatively European. People are hiding out in bomb shelters, but this isn't a place with all due respect um, you know, like Iraq or Afghanistan that has seen conflict raging for decades. You know, this is a relatively civilized, uh, relatively European, I have to choose those words carefully too, uh, city where you wouldn't expect that or hope that it's going to happen. 
the implications of that is disappointing also because these are people who across the board have almost all in some capacity been involved in covering Middle East um, issues and developments as well. So it gives you an idea into the lens of which their previous coverage and their experience in those regions has been viewed by. And Al Jazeera of all places, you know, we saw them saying these are not obviously refugees looking to get away from areas in the Middle East that are still in a big state of war. And these are not people trying to get away from areas in North Africa. And that is so egregious in and of itself. It kind of begs the question of, you know, what are journalists understanding of what it even takes to become a refugee, the amount of resources, the amount of funds, the amount of, you know, um, mobility, all these kinds of things that go into that and then looking at it and being highlighting this is just it's just incorrect it's factually incorrect it's openly biased and it goes on to just create the wrong impression for our viewers and our readers and that's who we really are should be held responsible to and also daniel hanan hanan yes hanan of the telegraph wrote they seem so like us this is what makes it so shocking war is no longer something visited upon impoverished and remote population it can happen to anyone it's and shocking because it highlights that he has a very uh convoluted idea of what war actually is and who's been suffering from it and where um in recent history one doesn't need to go so far back yeah and also as you said philippe Corbet of french tv said we're not talking here about syrians fleeing the bombing of the syrian regime backed by putin we're talking about Europeans living in cars that look like ours to save their lives. And on top of these, you know, um, just graphically images, we saw images of young Palestinian girls being used, which were well known to those of us from the Middle East who've covered that region, standing up to, to soldiers and then being labeled as proud Ukrainian girls or brave Ukrainian girls doing the same. Our reliance on these kinds of tropes is increasingly damaging and it has led to this dehumanization in the Middle East. And I think as a media, we felt that enough is enough and we need to you know, reject these kinds of Orientalist and racist implications about any one country that's uncivilized or bears economic factors that somehow make it deserving of conflict or war or occupation. And that's not fair journalism and that's not accurate journalism. And we need to do better because invariably, whether we want to it to be this way or not, our coverage impacts foreign policy and our coverage impacts how these people are treated. And when we frame it in ways like this, we are only holding up the same biases that we're, the rest of the world is seemingly supposed to be pushing against. And also these racist comments are not limited to journalists. We have heard that from heads of states as well. For example, Bulgaria's prime minister, Kirill Petkov said, these are not the refugees we are used to. They are Europeans, intelligent, educated people. Some are IT programmers. This is not the usual refugee wave of people with an unknown past. No European country is afraid of them. It's also that hidden message that these refugees that have left because of war and destruction they have faced in their countries, they are inherently terrorists. You know, I think that what we're seeing, and, and I think where I would point out that there's another gap in the kind of journalistic responsibility also, is that to look at 
foreign policy along the borders of Ukraine. And I'm going to give Ukraine a momentary pass here for some of their own actions inside the country. But to look at Hungary's policy against refugees that have been trying to cross, to look at Poland's, to look at um, Bulgaria's, Romania's, any of those neighboring countries, is to see quite openly a open practice of bias and racism against allowing refugees who are fleeing similar circumstances to the Ukrainians, a deportation or freezing in the forests or making comments um, dehumanizing them. We've seen that now for years and some of us have covered it, yet somehow when we see that they are blonde haired, blue eyed Ukrainians who absolutely deserve, I cannot emphasize that enough, deserve the right to go over those borders and to access safety, but they deserve it as do the Afghans, as that were just six months or seven months ago, as do the Syrians, as do the Iraqis, the Iranians, the North Africans, everyone that has tried to cross in order to gain a better life and to access safety for any reason. And I think when we see these kinds of comments, it also completely, again, overlooks the fact that these governments are using these kinds of tropes. They don't want to acknowledge the amount of funds, resources that it takes. These are not, you know, I would wager that most people who are crossing by land or crossing by boat, they have spent even in their in US dollars, thousands to be able to come across, to make it across. That's not something that, you know, most people can afford to do. And so I think it's it's creating just very problematic problematic tropes. And then we were just playing right into it as journalists and we, where we need to be pushing back, where we need to be doing kind of calling out and pushing back on some of these kinds of statements, but doing it by pointing out their own policy and the dualities we see there. Another undercover story is how immigrants um, who lived in Ukraine and went to school there, Indians, Afghans, Iranians, Africans, how their treatment has differed from that of Ukrainian nationals. Again, as you said, it's not about Ukrainian refugees. They should be helped and they should be welcomed. Everybody should welcome them. It's about why other refugees are not getting the same treatment as Ukrainians. I mean, we saw Nigerian, Kenyan, Ghanaian, um, Iranian, Indian, other countries rely on their own foreign governments to be able to intercede, to secure flights for them, to secure passage because it wasn't happening. And we saw the images of black people being pushed off of those trains in favor of Ukrainians to come on. Every country has a harsh history and every country has a lot of examination to do around their anti-blackness. But the reality is that these same countries also need to do some examination of their anti-Middle Eastern and anti-Muslim bias as well. These two can go hand in hand um, in these instances. And when we see that, you know, it's not an either or. We should be viewing these things through a lens of human rights, which is not a gray issue. It's very black and white. We can see that people who are under threat of war and violence should have a right to access safety. And that many of these countries have signed charters and agreements in order to comply with that. And then when they do so selectively and are telling us just a month or two prior to Ukraine, telling us journalists, telling different human rights workers that we're terribly sorry, our nations are full. We couldn't possibly accept any Afghans to come in. We don't have a way to house them. We don't have a way to give them uh, an integration process, any of these kinds of things. And 
and yet a mere month or two later, they do the right thing, which is open their borders and say, Ukrainians fleeing these bombs and these illegal attacks by Putin, you have a home here, don't you worry. By the way, we love your blue eyes and blonde hair. We see that duality and it's unacceptable and it's unacceptable as journalists to point that out in an admiring way or to point that out as part of our coverage as a norm. And, and that's simply just not okay. And also, I think it's important to talk about how these borders have been militarized and how the refugee issue has become weaponized. I, I think this should be fresh in everyone's mind uh, that few months ago, Belarus sent thousands of desperate migrants to its borders with Poland to antagonize the Europeans over sanctions imposed last year. There were about three to 4,000 refugees from Iraq, Syria, Yemen, and Afghanistan came to Belarus. The government relaxed the visa, and we heard the stories. And when they reached the border in the dead of winter, they were beaten. They died in the forest. Some of them died in the forest, and they were they had to go back and then be sent back to their countries. And I don't know what has happened to the rest of them. You alluded to it a bit. What do you think are the causes of Western media's double standard when it comes to covering the Middle East. Again, there have been invasions and wars in the region from Iraq to Yemen to Libya, especially in the post-Arab Spring. And there were so many of these journalists went there and covered these wars. Mm -hmm. Why there is such a deep level of ignorance and racism still embedded in the coverage when it comes to the region? We're looking at a flaw within journalism, period. And I think what we're seeing also is a willful ignorance uh, amongst newsrooms and, and reporters that have built careers off of covering pain and violence and war in the region. It's a hard truth, and it's not one I'm pleased to call out. But I think why it is this way is a lack of training. It is the lack of asking critical questions of yourself when you're in these regions, questions like, what lens am I using to see the people that I'm covering here? Am I telling the story from a position of my vision on it, not of putting myself in the shoes of the people that I am reporting on? And this holds true whether you're reporting in Iraq or whether you're reporting in a Democratic Republic of Congo. You know, you can pick your place and ask yourself some of these. Who are the sources that you're relying on? Are you covering the Middle East and relying on Washington to frame what is being covered? Or are you taking the trouble to find experts inside Baghdad that can tell you what's happening or Iranians inside Iran or wherever to rely on these kinds of stories? And the answer is simply that they don't and that newsrooms haven't, despite 30 plus years of conflict and war, haven't really built robust systems within their newsrooms when it comes to the Middle East, despite the fact that their newsrooms have Middle Eastern and Arab journalists working there. We are not utilized nearly enough, or in some cases, the newsrooms themselves are not diversified nearly enough. Um, when you see what the percentage is of the demographics of people who are telling these stories and how many of them come from diverse or uh, and I say diverse, meaning either racially diverse or economically diverse backgrounds to be able to tell these kinds of stories, it informs the lens in which we're telling it, you know, and I think that if we're not thinking critically when we approach these stories, then we are merely, we're being lazy and we're causing harm. 
I will also say that in instances, I regularly get phone calls saying, can you connect me to somebody inside Iran? And then others, you know, around Lebanon, you know, when the recent explosions happened um, in Beirut, I think that a number of our journalists received calls saying, can you connect me to somebody that has a story, right? And so it's again, a question of creating and building sources, networks, and people that you can reach out to that will that will connect you to those stories. And we're looking at one of the largest humanitarian crises with the sheer number of Ukrainians that are being forced to leave their country. But second to that, you know, is Syrians and Afghans and others who had the same number, not the same numbers, but similar numbers. You know, if there's a million people leaving, how hard is it to find a few of them that maybe can speak English or perhaps speak French? It's a fundamental misunderstanding of the kinds of demographics that make up these people that leads you to not tell their stories. And it's also a question of why wouldn't you make the same effort? Why? Mm. And not that you shouldn't, you know, at all. But again, why do I see the New York Times creating or others or magazines telling stories of 50 refugees that are leaving and why, and then not doing the same to that? Because doing that what is does a really critically important thing. And that is that it humanizes the people who are in that conflict, who are suffering. And I think when you humanize them, it gives the public an opportunity to connect, to understand, to care, to invest in the civil issues that are, are around that. And this, you know, Ukraine is it has the potential to affect the entire world. And as does Syria, these are all small building blocks by not speaking up about Syria and not humanizing Syrians, the Syrian people and their experience, we as journalists perhaps set the stage to embolden Putin to feel that he could do the same. He's using the same weapons. He's using many of the same tactics that he did in Syria, which was a practice run, perhaps. And so it's not that one thing affects you more than it does the other. It's that we as journalists are selectively choosing who we humanize and how, and that that's a detriment to the craft of journalism and it's a detriment to society. And I just want to give kudos to journalists, especially those from the Middle East and North Africa who have covered these issues diligently and with passion. In your statement, you say newsrooms must not take comparisons that weigh the significance or imply justification of one conflict over another. Civilian casualties and displacement in other countries are equally as abhorrent as they are in Ukraine. And you end the statement by recommending what it takes to prevent this bias reporting. You write, in order to prevent such explicit bias, we call on newsrooms to train correspondents on the cultural and political nuances, as you said, of regions they are reporting on and not rely on American Eurocentric biases. Inaccurate and disingenuous comparison only serve to inflame stereotypes and mislead viewers and they ultimately perpetuate prejudicial response to political and humanitarian crisis. So when you published this statement, it went viral on social media platform, on Twitter especially. Mm-hmm. And I saw thousands and thousands of responses and support of this statement. Mm-hmm. What's been the reaction from newsrooms here in London, in Paris, or other places, even Al Jazeera, what's been the response? Have you seen any shift in reporting at all? 
what we did, I think, at a critical moment was to hold up a mirror and say, listen to yourselves and see yourselves and see what's happening here. And I think that the kind of coverage was so egregious that many of these newsrooms, it was undeniable. It wasn't, a, oh, well, yes, this or oh, well, there was no excuse for that kind of coverage and there remains to be no excuse. And so I think what we've seen is a small bit of awareness to increase, you know, and I think that that's a very important thing for us at Amija, that that small bit of awareness perhaps leads them to think twice before they approve these kinds of lines or these kinds of statements. Mm. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that uh, Peter Dobby was dismissed from Al Jazeera. And I'm not in that newsroom. I don't know. And, and it wasn't something that we openly called for. But I think that when we see opportunities that people should be trained and they are not simply dismissing everyone doesn't solve the problem you cannot swipe it under the rug what we see here is a lack of responsibility that newsrooms are harboring by directly taking their reporters and saying no matter where in the world we're sending you you have to have a better sense of the history of the people of the contacts and of the expectations of what constitutes fair and just reporting and that's something that we that I think any newsroom can do. And it's our responsibility as, you know, editors and producers and, you know, whomever to do this properly. What do you think is our responsibility as journalists from the Middle East and North Africa? In recent years, we have seen more and more young journalists, especially women, joining newsrooms. What do you think is our responsibility? How can we close this gap or narrow it? It's a heavy burden and I hate to place the burden on my fellow Middle Eastern uh, peoples, but we have a, we, to enter these newsrooms, we already are entering with a burden because we enter with having to listen to the biases. We enter with having to endure kind of, you know, our own set of challenges um, that are unique to all of our backgrounds and our faiths and our beliefs. And that doesn't preclude us from speaking up. And I think it doesn't preclude us from trying our best to educate and to call out. And as many of our journalist members do, is to relying on organizations like Arab and Middle Eastern Journalists Association to help you do that as a voice of authority when you aren't able to. But I think we need to point out where it is and to sit with editors and others and demand that that training take place for our colleagues and sometimes for ourselves as well, to know the, the history of these regions that we're reporting on, to see the blind spots that many of us hold when we're doing this coverage and to increase our sources and to increase our networks of who we rely on to help secure the stories that we're charged with telling. And hire more journalists from the region. And hire many, many, many more journalists from all of these regions because a diverse newsroom is a strong newsroom. And I think anyone who has had any time in terms of the, you know, doing foreign reporting knows how much stronger you are when you have a diversity of people that you can call. And I miss Anthony Shadid all of the time. We speak his name often in terms of his ability to cover, but what he brought to the craft still holds a very high bar for the kind of reporting that can happen when someone is from the region, can speak the language, understands it intimately. And his stories have stood the test of time and we still rely on them for being able to contextualize things so beautifully, even in dark hours. Mahdis Keshavarz is a board member with the Arab and Middle Eastern Journalists Association. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.